Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou, tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 13. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention again to verse 8. This was our text last week. We take it up again today. Uh, these are the words spoken by the centurion. This is the comment that really earned for the centurion the commendation from the Lord about the greatness of his faith. So we read verse 8, The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. But speak the word only. That's our focus. The Lord speaking the word only. You may recall from our study last week, I raised the question, how far away are we from revival? How far away are we from an influx of souls? What would it take to bring such a thing to pass? Well, here's how close we are. But speak the word only. All it takes is the word spoken by Christ himself and attested to by his spirit. And it does not matter how deep the darkness has been, how long the period of darkness has been. When the Lord speaks the word only, great things happen. 
and the light dispels the darkness and gospel power is manifested. So we are focusing on that word, speak the word only, and I am doing so with the aim that you might see the potential behind that text as well as rise to the challenge presented by that text. We noted last time, and we didn't get beyond this, we focused uh, entirely on what the text teaches us about Christ. What does this teach us about Christ? And you may recall that I placed stress on the authority of Christ. That's what this centurion recognized in Christ. This is a man who has authority. And what authority? If this centurion was of the belief that Christ could, from a distance, speak a word, and that man's servant would be healed... Well, that's attributing to Christ then pretty high authority, isn't it? Authority and power. And that's what earned for this centurion the Lord's commendation. I haven't seen faith like this nowhere in Israel, not even among his disciples. I pointed out that there's only two instances in the gospel where the Lord commends great faith. And in neither case do you find it involving his disciples. In fact, in both cases, it involves Gentiles. In the case of the centurion and in the case of the Syrophoenician woman. And both of them have some things in common. Uh, they both share uh, a deep humility. This, this man to whom the Lord spoke, he says at the beginning of our text, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. The Syrophoenician woman says to the Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table, that following from the Lord saying, it's not fit to take the children's food and cast it to the dogs. And instead of going away dejected or instead of being put out by the insult, so to speak, no, she owns it and she manifests a humble spirit recognizing her unworthiness as well, but still pleading for mercy which he does gain from the Lord. Okay, so there is an emphasis here on authority, and that's what the centurion himself emphasizes. Uh, he was a man who had people under him. I say to this one, go do this, and he does it. To another, go do the other thing, and he does it. And he recognized that just as he, uh, a man of military rank, had that authority, so does Christ have an even greater authority, the authority indeed of God himself. You remember I pointed out how condescending Christ was on this occasion when he says, I will come and heal him. He's condescending to the low view that he has to be on the scene that he has to be present right there on the site where the centurion's servant uh, lies sick in order for this miracle to take place. The centurion had a higher view than that. Oh no, Lord, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof, but speak the word only. And he would gain that. I, I, I dare say that this centurion had a very high view of Christ. I think you could go so far as to say he saw Christ as God. Who else but God could do what he was calling upon Christ to do and what he thought Christ could do. So that was our 
focus in our last study is what the text teaches us about Christ. He's God. He has authority. He speaks with authority. He has the power to back his authority. I probably shared with you a story Dr. Cairns used to tell us. It, uh, it vividly illustrates so well what it means to have authority and yet not the power behind the authority. You've heard the story perhaps of um, a government agent who comes to a man's farm. That farm was going to be foreclosed. The government agent was going to post a notice on the tree informing anybody who passed by that uh, this farm was being foreclosed. And so he sees the farmer. He says to him, I'm going to post this notice on that tree. The farmer says, no, you're not. Well, the government agents put out, he says, well, yes, I am. I have the authority. And he produces his credentials, shows his badge, what have you, and says, you see my authority? I'm going to post the notice on the tree. The farmer still says, no, you're not. So in defiance to the farmer who's refusing to acknowledge the authority, the government agent climbs over the fence, proceeds toward the tree. Unknown to him, there was an angry bull in that field who proceeded to chase the government agent away from the tree. He had the authority, but he didn't have the power, was the point that was being illustrated. Christ has both. He has the authority. He has the power to back the authority. So now what I want to do today is is come to the next point. We have considered what this text teaches us about Christ. Let's um, narrow the scope of that a little bit and uh, do so by noting what the text teaches us about Christ's word. Christ's word, okay? What would it take for the centurion servant to be healed? It would take a word. Just a word from Christ. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. It wouldn't take Christ's bodily presence. It wouldn't take a special formula. It wouldn't take some special prescription given by Christ. It would simply take a word spoken by Christ in similar fashion, I suppose, to what you find God himself doing in the very beginning God said, let there be light, and there was light. Just a word. Now, the application of this truth is what I find so encouraging about the text. All it takes is a word from Christ. And yet this doesn't seem to be much appreciated by the people of God today. I raised the question a moment ago. I'll raise it again now. How far are we from seeing the showers of blessing? How far are we from seeing a modern-day reformation? How far are we from seeing the hardest, proudest, and most obstinate sinner brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Some would argue we're a long way from seeing God move. They would say that God cannot or God will not move with power and blessing in our day. The day is too dark. The season of sin has been too long. The time for blessing is past. And now we live in days that are so filled with ungodliness and wickedness 
that not even God himself could overcome it. And again, I'm reminded of that man in 2 Kings 6, the servant uh, of the king who had come to Elisha and asked the question, why should we wait any longer? The city was under siege by the Syrians. Uh, That siege had become so severe that grotesque things were taking place in the city. Cannibalism was taking place in the city of Samaria. The, The famine had been that severe. Why should we wait any longer? The king's servant wanted to to know. And what did Elisha say? Tomorrow, about this time, shall so much barley go for a shekel, so much wheat for so much. And the king's servant responded by saying, Could such a thing happen if the Lord would even open windows in heaven? He thought that they were beyond what even God himself could deal with. I'm afraid there are Christians that think that way today. This kind of outlook, I have to say, is not very informed historically. Why do you suppose that the days that preceded the Reformation are known as the Dark Ages? It wasn't because the times appeared promising for a movement of God. Indeed, there was so much superstition then that for the most part, people didn't even know their needs. Now, such a bleak outlook could be justified if we were left to our own devices. But now let Christ give the word. Let the Spirit of Christ bear witness to the word of Christ. And now no heart is so hard that it can't be penetrated. No circumstances are so gloomy that the darkness can't be dispelled. No storm in life is so turbulent that it can't be stilled. No sins are so great that they can't be forgiven. All that is required is for Christ to give the word. This is why, as Christians, we come to church hoping and praying for a word from Christ for our own souls. You haven't come, or I hope you haven't come, to hear a preacher. You haven't come simply to hear a sermon, or at least I hope you haven't. I hope that when you come to the Lord's house, you come with a higher aim. You want to hear from Christ himself. This is why we take the time in the middle of the week to pray for our services on Sunday. We pray that Christ will speak the word only. I'm afraid that too many churches have lost the simplicity of faith. We have to package the message more attractively, they reason. We have to change the atmosphere of our services. We have to invent ways to be more appealing. We have to be less formal. And we have to guard ourselves at all costs against being confrontational. We need to find more creative ways for getting out the message so that more people will hear and respond to it. I'm afraid that so much of that amounts to little more than the voice of unbelief. The people that master the advertising gimmicks may gain an audience. They can't save a soul. They may tickle someone's ears, but they can't change a heart. 
They may move a person to laugh or cry. They can't regenerate him because that takes Christ's word. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. But speak the word only. That's what it takes. And how does that happen? Some people have strange ideas about how this word is spoken. Some will say they've heard voices from heaven. Others will say that every internal impulse they feel must be a word from the Lord. How does it happen when the Lord speaks the word? I'd suggest it happens the same way today that it happened in Christ's day. Christ spoke the word. The Spirit bore witness to the truth of the word. It wasn't the force of Christ's arguments, though his arguments were always true and right. It wasn't the nature of his personality or appearance, for we know from Isaiah that he has no form nor comeliness nor beauty that we should desire him. Wasn't the force of some kind of a natural personality magnetism that enabled the Lord to do what he did? No, it was very simply the Spirit bearing witness to the Word to the hearts of his hearers. And this is what we should come expecting and hoping from God. And this is what we should pray for as we endeavor to speak for God. He does, after all, speak through you and through me. Oh, that Christ would speak the word only through you and through me. We have what Christ has spoken Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, God, who in sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So Christ has spoken, and all that needs to be said has been spoken by Christ. How then is that spoken word communicated? Well, it's communicated through you and through me. All we do is pass on what's already been said. And the way it becomes effectual is the same way it was made effectual when Christ spoke it, which was through the power of the Holy Spirit. You begin to see then the potential for great power and blessing to you and through you. But speak the word only. Don't let the words, the world's unbelief stifle you from speaking the word, sowing the seed of God's word. I know I've used this illustration in the past as well. Say you are in a dangerous place in downtown Indianapolis. You go past an alley, some dark character steps out in front of you with a gun, points it at you, says, Give me your wallet. You respond, no, I don't believe in guns. Is that going to keep the bullet from penetrating your stomach if he pulls the trigger? Uh, no. Same way with God's word. It's quick. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Don't let the world's 
scoffing attitude and unbelief uh, hinder you from sowing the seed of the word. But speak the word only. Let that text govern what you expect when you turn to God's word. Let it guide your witness when you endeavor to give out God's word. Oh, that Christ would speak to you and that Christ himself would speak through you. The potential is there. We can see salvation brought. We can hear from God ourselves. Christ has the authority. He has the power. It is his word that he blesses. And now let me say a word finally about the centurion himself. We see what the text teaches us about Christ and about Christ's word. If we would draw the encouragement we need from the text to rise to the challenge it presents, we must finally note what the passage teaches us about the centurion's faith. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. That's a statement coming from the centurion himself. He's the one who spoke those words. He's the one who believed Christ's word to him in verse 13 is, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. So there is a response required on the part of the one who would know the power and the blessing of God's word. That response must be a response of faith. There were so many, you know, in Christ's time who heard his words and beheld his miracles who did not profit by what they saw or what they heard. Have you ever wondered? I've, I've heard people express this. Maybe uh, you've expressed it yourself. If only I could have been there. If only I could have seen for myself the miracles that Christ performed. If I could see it with my own eyes or hear him with my own ears. Well, you know, there were all sorts of people that did see with their eyes, heard with their ears, didn't do them any good at all. What they needed was the Holy Spirit to be wrought upon their hearts, the very thing that we need today. We're told in Hebrews 4 and verse 2 that unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. We're also told in Romans 10 verse 17 that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there's a clear connection then between the word and faith. The blessing requires faith and faith cometh by the word of God. Which means that if you would realize the potential of the power and blessing of the word, you must have faith in that word. And it is through exposure to that word that faith is initiated and that faith grows. Now, that might seem to be a little complicated at first, but there's a clear illustration. You probably know it from the Gospel of John, John 11. You have the account of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. Christ spoke the word only, didn't he? Lazarus, come forth. And that word went forth with effectual power. Lazarus, of course, was dead. There was nothing in Lazarus that could have responded to the word to come forth. If the success or power of Christ's word depended initially on a response of faith from Lazarus, he would have remained in the grave. 
but that word carried with it the effectual power of God's Spirit to enable Lazarus to hear and respond. And this is why it's so imperative that we give out Christ's word. It has the same potential today. When attended by God's Spirit, a dead sinner can be brought back to life. Lazarus didn't have to be persuaded to rise from the dead. Christ didn't have to win an argument with a dead man in order to bring him to life. No, Christ spoke the word only. And that word was used by the Spirit to bring Lazarus back to life. So the challenge to the believer's faith then is simply this. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Do you believe in the power of God's word? Do you believe in the potential for a sinner to be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life? If you do, then you'll avail yourself of every opportunity to sow the good seed of God's word. Now, once Lazarus was brought back to life, where do we find him? We find him abiding in the presence of Christ. And this is where the believer's responsibility enters to tend to his faith. You know that faith came initially through the power of Christ's word. How is your faith to be maintained? How is your faith to grow? How can your faith rise to the level of what Christ himself would call great faith? Well, you must abide in the presence of Christ. You must expose yourself to that life-giving word. You must come into Christ's presence with an open Bible and an open heart to the word of God. And that quickening, sustaining, life-giving word will be communicated to your heart continually by the Spirit of God. You begin to see, then I hope, the need for daily time in the word of God. We're well into the year now. January's behind us. Did you begin a Bible reading schedule this year? I hope you did, but if you didn't, you can still start. Don't worry about the calendar. Just worry about being in the Word. This is the place that Christ speaks the Word to your soul. This is the place where soul-saving, life-sustaining, faith-inspiring power is imparted. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Do you see the potential behind this expression of great faith? If you do, then you'll see fit to keep yourself exposed to the word of God, and you'll see fit to bountifully sow the word of God. And as I said before, I don't care how ungodly the day is in which we live. I refuse to believe that the wickedness of our time can nullify the power of God's word. All we need in this day is for Christ to speak the word only and the power of the Reformation can be wrought in our day. I made reference in our last study to William Tyndale, the man who's credited with translating and circulating the Bible, wasn't the very first one to do it, but was certainly the man who succeeded in widespread circulation of that word. Why? 
Uh, why would Tyndale endanger his life, uh, end up a martyr, end up an exile from his country for his involvement with distributing the Bible? Well, it's because he knew this. He knew the power of the word. The Reformation in England is somewhat more unusual than the Reformation on the European continent, and that in England it's traceable uh, nearly exclusively to the distribution of the Bible. Perhaps you know the story of Tyndale enough to recall a private debate he had with a learned Catholic scholar. In the course of that dispute, this scholar uh, burst out into these blasphemous words, we had better be without God's laws than the Pope's. Mr. Tyndale, hearing these words full of godly zeal, replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spare my life, ere many years I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And the Protestant heritage of England can be traced in large measure to Tyndale's zeal to see that very thing realized. The Bible published and circulated. Do you believe in the power of God's word today? If you do, then you'll read it with an open heart before God And could I remind you just again how important it is for a little heart preparation each time you open God's word. Think about what it is that you have in front of you. Think about its history. Think about its nature. The supernatural way, you could say, in which it was inspired and the unusual way in which it's been preserved through many, many generations. Think about what you have in front of you. This is God's word. Oh, Lord, help me to approach it reverently. Please give me the needed grace and help by thy spirit to open my heart to it so that I'm not merely dragging my eyes over words or seeking to store information in my head. Let this word reach my heart. Let this word point me to my Savior and let my faith increase, O Lord, as I open thy word and read it just now. You'll sow it recognizing the potential for a great harvest. Would you attempt great things for God and expect great things from God? It doesn't require uh, so much theological scholarship as it requires simple faith. I remember many years ago when we went through the book of Acts, I made that a point of emphasis. What was the success to the apostles' power? What was it their great uh, theological knowledge? Well, not really. You wouldn't say any of them were really uh, educated in seminary, I guess with the exception of the Apostle Paul, a notable exception, uh, but not so with the rest. But what was it, uh, the secret to their power, so to speak? And I suggested several times throughout those studies that it was really very simple. They really believed that Christ was risen from the dead. That's really what drove them. They knew the truth of it. Christ is risen from the dead. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Oh, I pray today that you'll be convinced of Christ's greatness. There's no one greater. 
All power and authority is committed unto him. I pray today that you'll be convinced of the power of his word. If you are, then you'll read it, you'll pray over it, you'll grow in grace by it, you'll commune with Christ through it, and you'll endeavor to scatter it far and wide. But speak the word only. Oh, I trust today that the word of Christ will be spoken to your soul by Christ himself, by his spirit. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this service to a close, we pray that thou wilt help us to appreciate the potential for great power that's found in this book that we have before us, even thy word. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt indeed speak the word only to our souls when we open thy word. May we know the Holy Spirit's help, bearing witness to its truth and making its application to our hearts so that we know this truth in the very depth of our being and know the truth of being transformed by it. So, Lord, bring it to pass, we pray, for the honor and glory of Christ. Amen.